I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Trevor Bennett is the co-founder of Starfish Space, where he's giving life to on-orbit services. He earned a PhD from the University of Colorado when he was a NASA Space Technology Research Fellow and one of Aviation Week's 2020s. Trevor has worked at both NASA Goddard and JPL on robotic missions, and also at Blue Origin on New Glenn. He has broad technical expertise in guidance, navigation, and control, with a particular focus on rendezvous, proximity, operations, and docking, which are all extremely relevant to our topic at hand today. So Trevor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on today. I'm glad that we're both glad that you're here. Now, Starfish Space was co-founded by you and fellow Blue Origin alum, Austin Link. And I'm going to ask you the same question I asked Andy Lapsa, who is also a alum of Blue Origin and is now the CEO of Stoke Space. Starting a new business is hard. Starting a new business in what is basically an entirely new marketplace while trying to create a new category with custom software and hardware is even harder. So why did you and Austin decide to found Starfish Space rather than work somewhere in or adjacent to this category? Why take the leap from employee to founder with all the risks that that entails? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll try to break it down into a few different areas. One, there's the technology. There is also kind of a company that we wanted to have realized. And I think Andy had similar thoughts around this. And then probably the last area is that There's a time in life where you can take risks and you can pursue some unique opportunities. And Austin and I found each other in that same spot. So a number of things there. Often as we, before we dive into some of the detail, you hear around startups that it has to be the right technology at the right time, at the right conditions. And that is true for Starfish, just as it was for many other successful companies. And, you know, we still have a lot to prove as we go through, but we're starting off on a right foot here. So diving into some of those three different areas. With the technology itself, we were watching large rockets come into fruition here. We saw the age of SpaceX, the age of launch vehicles providing huge amounts of mass to go to orbit. And why that's exciting is because prior to this last few decades, a launch was a rare occurrence. People would stake out for multiple days, weeks, plan their vacations around being able to see a single launch. Now, you can go see one multiple times a week from the same launch site. What that's doing is it's almost changing it towards frequent travel to orbit, and folks are starting to open up opportunities to go build on top of that capability. We are the same. We were watching this future in which multiple spacecraft could be launched, thousands of spacecraft could be launched, and now in-space transportation, in-space interaction between different objects, whether that's building a space station or trying to get two spacecraft to not hit each other as they fly past at at 17,000 miles per hour. These are all things that become very real for operators and for the industry, both in exciting and challenging opportunities here. That's where we saw the industry going. Now, why did we go even join Blue Origin in the first place? We got excited by a vision of millions of people living and working in space. That's Blue Origin's tagline. But for us personally, what really resonated was there is a future beyond Earth. There's a future that we can help go create and actually materially impact which direction it goes. And for us, we saw some of our contributions at Blue Origin were were starting to move in that direction, but there was a unique opportunity to go and move that a little bit further using what now we have realized as Starfish Space. And that vision was having objects interact in spacecraft 
interact and dock with each other in space is the foundation for in-space operations that we take for granted on planet Earth. Being able to have habitats where people can live, moving goods and services around, being able to actually build structures. All of these things are dependent on a couple of core technologies. So now to really answer your key question that you had up front, why go start it, right? We had this excitement for the industry. We had this excitement for the future that could be real if we were to put the effort in. And we saw this opportunity to go and take some technology from other areas of the industry and from our past to go put to bear there. And so that was specifically, and we'll get probably more into this, the ability to grab and move other objects around. And really as a precursor to that, the ability to fly two spacecraft relatively close together when they're traveling and really hurtling through space at, at really high velocities. And that was where some of our expertise came from. Now, the last part of, of why we would go start this is that we were in a unique phase of life where we didn't have a lot of extra life challenges or, or life obligations, and we could go take a risk. And for early on, Austin and I had to think through where we wanted to go with our careers, with our lives. And one of the things that we realized when we started Starfish was that failure was not going and trying to do something incredibly hard or challenging. Failure would have been like sitting on the couch watching Netflix for a year. We were going to learn so much in the course of whatever year we, we put towards this project, whether it's talking to customers, learning from investors, trying to actually build a system architecture from the ground up that irrespective, even if we didn't hire anybody, we raised no money, our technology had challenges or engineering capabilities that we just couldn't realize we would still be so employable and have an opportunity to take that experience somewhere else and, and guide the future of the industry from another position, then it was worth the risk. And worth highlighting, and I appreciate you including Austin in the intro here, because that was another major reason I was willing to take this step, is we found each other through working together for two years at Blue Origin, knew how we each worked, knew what our complementary strengths were, knew what each other's weaknesses were as well. And that meant setting out on this venture was not a hard decision. Blue Origin is an interesting case because it has yet to launch New Glenn successfully, but in its own way, it's kind of turning into a founder incubator. It seems like a lot of alums from Blue Origin go on to then found their own companies, which become rather successful quite quickly. Yeah, it is kind of a remarkable paradigm, isn't it? That's not unique to Blue Origin, but maybe SpaceX has some examples of that as well and, and some of these other industries. Really, what I think helps us, and interestingly enough, you having a conversation with Stoke and then with Andy, we still play soccer together on the side. So it's, it's kind of one of these unique experiences where you get this confluence of folks that are really high caliber in a number, number of ways. And that's really what Blue Origin was. It was a vision that attracted people. SpaceX is a vision that attracts people. Even you look at some of these other technology companies that have found success across industries, they put forward a challenge and say, can we actually create the future that we envision here? And Blue Origin was no different than others. And so I think it attracts the people that are willing to go after that vision, that are willing to put in the hard work, that have the technical expertise to solve those problems. And at the end of the day, whether Blue Origin realizes what Blue Origin is pursuing, or it connects those people and lets them kind of feel empowered and able to go and try something, either way can help shape the future here. You know, in Ashley Vance's newest book, When the Heavens Went on Sale, there is a repeated theme of how important it is for similarly minded, similarly driven people to have those serendipitous moments of being able to meet each other 
and then they go off to start a company. But there was something that you you said maybe about a minute ago, Trevor, that really stuck out to me because it reminded me of an answer you gave on another show. You said, there was a future we can go help create. And you made a bold, clear statement in response to a, a similar intro question in an interview with Builder Nation on YouTube. You said, quote, small companies and startups and entrepreneurs in general are the ones that get to change the world, end quote. What I like a great deal, Trevor, about how you speak about this stuff, that answer was really refreshing because it's not uncommon to hear company founders kind of mask their ambition with more modest answers. But to be honest, you know, if you don't feel like you're going to do something big, the risk and stress and workload of founding a company and trying something bold isn't really worth it, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, you have put me in a box here, right? Because that's part of the rationale is that we can actually go and, and change the world. And that has to be a vision there. A mentor early on in the process here helped me shape my, let's not call it necessarily ambition, because ambition has a number of other aspects that come into it, but almost like the North Star for what my role at Starfish would be and how I could help shape Starfish. And I have a very distinct moment in my mind of where two spacecraft, we're watching this in the control center, these two spacecraft come up and dock with each other. And there I am standing with the Starfish folks that made this possible. And that that moment is just a culmination of hard work. It's a culmination of building a team, but it really is the focal point in which so many more amazing things can flow from. And that's part of the reason why, as we think about what Starfish is trying to pursue, we have this demo mission coming up this summer where we can actually go and, and start to realize those types of moments and have an opportunity to try and get there and test. And that's what gets me excited. That's what, as you highlight, there's a challenging road for a founder. There's a challenging road for startups as they go through these steps and really having those clear visions and clear ambition, if you will, helps make sure that at the end of the day, we're staying focused on what matters and that we get to celebrate some of those potentially game-changing opportunities. Yeah. And that's what I think is so exciting about what Starfish Space is doing and about the space industry as a whole. But before we get to Otter Pup, and the Otter Vehicle, I want to linger just a little bit longer on what brought you here today. Because for me, like one of the most fascinating things about learning and talking about companies like yours, or Stoke Space, or any one of the other founders I've had the pleasure and luck of speaking with, is why they chose to do it, or what was the journey that got them to where they are. And in that same talk with Builder Nation, you were recalling a part of your childhood. You said, quote, I remember selling trinkets and things as an elementary school kid to my neighbors. Little did I know that that was going to be a sign of things to come, end quote. And I have similar childhood memories, whether it was going door to door selling magazine subscriptions to my neighbors for the Cub Scouts or setting up a lemonade stand on the front lawn to make some comic book money. But it's that second sentence in that quote that interests me the most, Trevor. Little did I know that that was going to be a sign of things to come. Now, I think anyone can draw a straight line from kid who likes to sell stuff to his neighbors to company founder who is now selling stuff to his peers. But I look at your resume leading up to founding Starfish Space, and I see guidance and navigation development at NASA, developing tools and techniques to improve mission design processes at JPL, researching charged astrodynamics as a grad student at the University of Colorado, and a couple years as a flight sciences engineer at Blue Origin. So that leap in 2019, one giant leap if we're going to keep things thematically appropriate. Yes. Why did you take it? 
you know, was salesmanship always your true passion? Was the selling trinkets, the inciting incident lying dormant all these years? Or help me draw the line between a kid who loved kind of being a salesman to his neighbors, to super passionate about engineering and research, to back to founder. Yeah, happy to try to stitch this together as best I can. As we reflect back on the initial statement, right, little did I know, I think that's true of many people's journey, right? We find things that are important to us and we try to pursue those as much as we can. And in doing so, we find hopefully creative ways to continue to do that. And at the end of the day, hopefully valuable ways that contribute to that North Star of ours. In my case, there were two kind of big things that I loved as a kid and pursued both with with kind of some vigor. One was like robotics and autonomy. That was sitting on the floor, piecing Legos together while, you know, the radio's blasting in my room and doing so for hours. And then learning how to try to program this so that I could drive this little two-wheel vehicle along this black line. And many kids have similar experiences, but it led to a, a kind of a through line for me at every step of the way. It was always about how do we make things like robotics, that could a car that could drive itself, or a spacecraft that could plan a path and actually go and dock with another spacecraft. This through line of understanding the physics of our world, understanding how we can control a vehicle through those physics, whether it's turning the steering wheel in a car or firing a thruster and having a little extra push that nudges us in the right direction. That was one element of it. The other element was more of this, many would call like an artsy fartsy or, or just a, a nature of curiosity about the world here. Mm. And that curiosity led me in a variety of different directions. Yeah, it was selling little trinkets at, at swim meets. It was acting lessons or speech lessons. It was going through and just learning a new skill every semester or, or every few months just for the sake of learning and curiosity because it's so exciting. And that's something we've actually brought to Starfish as well. The salesmanship part was all about how do we actually realize this future for me? And another example that I'll, I'll weigh heavily here for us was there was this group that we formed in late grad school. And it was a group of us that came out of a commercial spaceflight class. And we all went in thinking, oh, man, we're going to learn how to fly spacecraft because that's not something we know how to do. And the professor, who's now a founder in his own right, <laughs> so we were definitely mixing with the right people, <laughs> told us rather jokingly, you guys are overqualified in certain respects here. Like you've spent too much time learning the math to, to sit there and do a good job on the console. There are people that train to do that. What you need to do is go learn how to apply some of your skills to go make spacecraft that people can fly. And he focused us towards how might you actually put thousands of people in orbit between the Earth and the Moon? They were going to live there. Why would they live there? How would they live there? Is there any economic case that justifies us putting it there? And little did we know, we'll keep with the theme here, that it led us to ask a series of questions that we had not asked ourselves before, which is mining water on the moon is such an exciting future. But is that one that we could realize in the next five years? What would actually drive us that? And, and we dug into this project. We brought on some economics students. We brought in just enthusiasts along the side on, on the journey with us. And what we discovered is we actually could start to model specific scenarios that let's say we mined some water on the moon and brought it back to this special orbit called GEO, which we'll probably talk about, where these big telecommunication satellites are, or we have a space station at, 
And that is actually cheaper to do than it is to bring it up from the surface of the earth. And that was, a, of course, in my you know, like $2016. So we'll see if SpaceX continues to bring that price down or Stoke or others bring that price down. But that was what we started trading. And so here was suddenly in a moment where we were pushed towards, yes, building spacecraft is important. That's a very challenging thing to do. It's hard to do well. How are you going? Like, why are you going to use it? Where is it going to be used? And those were questions I think really kind of rounded out some of the thinking. And so that was part of the rationale for looking at companies like SpaceX and Blue Origin as the next step and seeing companies like that that said, there's a reason we're going to go build this. We're not just going to go build another defense spacecraft. We're not just going to go build another science probe just for the sake of science probes. But it has this through line that if we do these next few things, that allows us an opportunity to go build the big thing after that. Whether that's, here's a few rockets to go live on Mars, or here's some architecture about this special type of rocket that lets us put big space stations to orbit. Or in our case, here's this fundamental ability to grab and move another satellite around that allows us to go start assembling telescopes or supplying space stations, or in some cases, remove debris or remove satellites before they become a problem for others. And that was really the, the core set of questions that led us to the right place here. And as people who are start to think and, and live in that soup, where it is a technical and economic and kind of passion all kind of stirring together, Austin and I had lots of conversations about where we thought the industry would go. And one story I would just kind of quickly anecdote with is we were in a drive to go rafting together and he poses the question like, when do humans get on Mars, right? And which country is it, right? And just continually asking ourselves these questions led to a few others. Well, well, why would we go? Well, who would do it? What would prompt it? And that's similar kind of thinking that led us ultimately to go say, there's actually an opportunity here for two guys, one who has some guidance and control background and one who's a, a system architect who knows how to bring simulation and parts of the puzzle together to go out, even though they're engineers who know nothing about business, who know nothing about venture capital other than what we've learned on podcasts and, and can read online, to go give this a real shot. And as you asked, like when we, we started this, Asa and I showed up day one and we both got haircuts. So we knew we were serious about doing Starfish. We sat down in the library, which was free and great. They had you know, all the things that we need. And we set out to write a founder's vision for ourselves. And in that vision, we were able to articulate what really mattered to us. Those two elements are really why we did Starfish. And that was to live and work with joy, which means day in, day out, we're, we're focusing on the things that matter for us as humans, not just in the office, but out doing the things that we love doing. And then the other part of that was helping humans explore the cosmos building the technology, focusing on building an industry and a culture inside and outside of aerospace that helped us go and realize this vision of having humans do amazing things in space and, and really embracing the universe. What is so evident in listening to you talk about this stuff, whether it's your childhood background and your diverse array of interests as a kid, and that continued curiosity that you elaborate on right now. It's something fundamental that I think folks might take for granted, which is that to be the founder of a company or really to sell anything, and I don't use sell as like a dirty word. What I mean by that is you could have something incredibly useful. doesn't matter what the industry is. It could be something as simple as a little widget that someone would install in their car or something as complex as an autonomous satellite that can repair other satellites. If you don't have the storytelling capability 
to make other people understand why your product is going to be life-changing for them. It doesn't matter how good the product is. No one will ever know they should buy it. And that's one of the things that I, I love about speaking with founders like yourself is having them explain the storytelling aspect of why their product is going to change the world. And so for me, all the engineering stuff, which I promise we will get into in just one second, because it is such an interesting part of what Starfish Space is doing. What I love, because I come from a storytelling background, one of my very, very first memories is sitting on the carpet of my parents' townhome, sitting next to my dad. He's got a typewriter out. I'm three years old. And I'm dictating superhero stories to him and he's typing them out and reading them back to me. That's my core memory. So for me, hearing about the why you started Starfish Space is so interesting because it explains why the product is valuable. Yeah, I think you have rightly identified a number of things that are so important for ourselves, for other founders, for industries time and time again. Engineers have to be able to communicate what's valuable everybody in the company, communication becomes that key. Storytelling is one method of helping people align around common goals and common vision. And for better or for worse, it's a skill that we either learn the hard way or fortunately, in some cases, people come with that naturally and indispensable in the industry and indispensable in especially those early stages where you have nothing but the story. You have nothing but the people around you that you're trying to motivate and help join your journey. And appreciate the story about, you know, sitting there with your dad, writing the superhero stories, because that's really what this is, right? Every time we kind of spool a tale for ourselves, we try to lay out a vision of what we think will be true and, and how we're going to get there. And also so important along the way is knowing how to articulate the challenges and articulate the steps that we'll have to take. You'll find us, and, and this will just be a through line as we talk as well, there are so many unknowns in space operations. There are so many things that could go wrong. And that has to be one of the things that we bring into our conversations, that these things require lots of effort, lots of time, lots of careful analysis. And being able to share with people and, and articulate how important all of those pieces are, whether that's outward to an investor or whether that's internal to an engineer that's sitting there next to me and we're both coding together, figuring out what the correct line of code is, those two things share that common element that you, you rightly describe. It's, it really comes down to the story that we're all trying to pursue. So let's get to the tech. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we've, we've teased the audience enough. So yeah. the Otter Satellite Servicing Vehicle is an ESPA, or Evolved Secondary Payload Adapter class vehicle that's under 500 pounds that can do two major commercial missions, what you call GEO, or Geosynchronous Equatorial Orbit Life Extension, and LEO, or Low Earth Orbit Constellation Cleanup, or Space Debris Removal for our audience. Can you walk us through what these two missions entail and why they're critical? I'm going to give you a very high-level view and then more of a detailed view. At a high level, these missions are stepping stones to great things. We as an industry have not historically had things docked in space. There are some great ways we have done it. Notably, like the space shuttle went and serviced the Hubble Space Telescope on multiple occasions. Each time they were installing new mirrors so that we got better pictures or fixing a problem that the Hubble Telescope had. Those types of missions enabled us to extend a spacecraft that was only designed for 10 years of, of real operation to celebrate now over 30 years of incredible imagery, things that people like to use on their backgrounds of computers. It showed to us that we were not as 
unique of uh, this planet as we thought we were because there are galaxies and galaxies in a single frame or a single pixel of an image. That was part of this, like what servicing can provide. There are assembling space stations and having an international community come together and build components in two different nation states, meet in the middle in space and actually have humans live on it. We've also had opportunities just to see where that leads us. And that's really what satellite servicing or satellite interaction is all about. We want to have more of that. And so we as a company, we're trying to think, how do we realize more of this in-space interaction, more of the satellite servicing and, and prolonging life of spacecraft that bring us a lot of value? And for us, that's how we started settling on these two missions, because we saw an immediate need for them now. And the technology that we built in both cases allows us to go and build this future. So let's get more of the detail now. So why these two orbits? There is a specific orbit called GEO that you rightly described here, which the orbit period is 24 hours. Why is that important? The satellite goes around the Earth in the same amount of time the Earth turns. So you standing on the ground, looking up into the sky, the satellite will appear not to move, which is also why you can go look at a person's house and they have their direct TV satellite dish and it's fixed. That's actually pointing at a GEO satellite. That's where the TV signals are coming from. And so these spacecraft are responsible for SiriusXM, DirecTV, and a number of other cell phone technologies or capabilities of telecommunication the world over. So it's a very unique orbit, but it's limited real estate. There's only a narrow band that a satellite can sit in that holds that property true, that it's actually in that right spot. Hence equatorial? Yeah, so equatorial is part of it. When we think of orbits, we think of basically circles and ellipses that surround the Earth and one of those orientations is around the equator, right? If it is at the same point of the equator, it stays there. If it's inclined, it kind of goes up and down. It like sees a little bit more of the north and a little bit more of the southern hemisphere. Equator gets to see both at the same time equally. So very convenient place for it. And so this equatorial orbit of GEO is limited resource in that it, there's only a few spots you can be in. So these spacecraft are they're the size of a school bus. They have solar panels that extend a school bus on either side. And they're massive spacecraft to be able to send all of the data that we are so hungry for here on Earth. They run out of fuel, though. At the end of their 15-year lifetimes, they run dry. And then once they run dry, they start drifting away from that position. Now, this spacecraft might be working just fine. It just needs to be put back in its spot. And so that's where our starfish can come in. We can actually come up to that spacecraft, and this is the complex mission that we're really solving in an economically viable way, is fly up to another spacecraft, grab onto it, and pull it back where it needs to go. And then we can hold it there for another multiple year span. Maybe that's up to four, five more years in which it can continue to operate. And that might allow the operator to build a new one and bring it up there, or it might allow them to continue service so that you get to get a few more years of, of watching your favorite game or show because it actually is staying in that same slot. So that's the geo one. In that instance where the otter vehicle, as you're describing now, will grab that multiple school bus sized satellite and kind of pull it back into position. I guess my two questions are, and this is difficult in an audio only podcast, I recommend anyone listening to go to the Starfish Space website, get an idea of how big the otter is going to be. It's going to be quite small compared to these satellites it's moving around. There's no friction in space that it's necessarily pushing against. So I suppose you could have an, a vehicle that small move an object that big. 
but then it's going to be basically attached to that geo satellite for the entire lifespan of the otter vehicle, or can the otter vehicle detach and do other things? Yeah, great question. So two parts to answer there. Let's get a perspective on size. So the geo satellite is a school bus. We are like the size of a washing machine. And so our little washing machine side spacecraft is going to stick on the side and push it around. And, and you're right that the forces that are happening in orbit are very different than what we kind of experience on the road. And so what we're really doing is we're just nudging it on the side and just keeping its velocity up. And so this is really the weight of a few house flies on a piece of paper or a pencil or a pen sitting on, on a desk is enough if you push it in the right direction to just and continually push it slowly over time to keep it in the right place. And we can dive into a little bit more of why that's possible, but it's really kind of shocking how just little forces like that can really amplify over time. And then the other part of this is as the otter goes and attaches to this large spacecraft, we are providing a service, almost like an Uber or a Lyft would. We're going to pull it back to where it needs to go. We'll keep it there. And we can stay with it as long as it needs to stay there. Because if we do let go, it does start drifting away. This could be the sun has gravity and it's pulling on it. The moon has gravity and it's pulling on it. Even just the rays of sunlight push it out of the way over time. And so those are all the different what we call perturbations or just disturbances to the force that actually push the spacecraft away. And so we're fighting those as long as we want to keep the spacecraft in that same slot. The unique thing about Otter is that it has the ability to undock and redock multiple times. So that means we could stay with one satellite for a couple of years, shift over to another one, help that one out for a couple of years, shift over to another one and so on. And so we actually have this ability to be more like a transportation service that could be on demand. So that's really where we're trying to move to. And that's really where the economics start to make sense is when a spacecraft can be used as needed in a variety of different places, whether it's multiple years on one spacecraft or parts of years on a bunch of different spacecraft, we can kind of get the same value to the industry and provide a flexibility. So really kind of a versatile set of interactions there, but it all comes down to making the otter cost effective, making it small size that it is. And that really means pulling some complexity into some of the software and hardware that we've developed at Starfish that are a little unique to the satellite servicing industry. So let's say a company that makes those large geosatellites hears about what you're doing over at Starfish Space. And they're like, oh, they have these electric propulsion engines that won't have to suffer from fuel loss. They won't run into the problem that we're running in with our larger satellites. We're running out of fuel and are in need of a company like Starfish Space. Would their next satellite, like let's say they're like, okay, it's time to launch our next you know, multiple school bus satellite. Why don't we incorporate that technology into our next satellite so that Starfish Space's needs will become redundant in regards to our own satellite? What's the case for a Starfish Space in that instance? It's a great question and one that we grapple with in the industry at large. And, and really the question is, has a satellite been designed to be serviced or has it not been designed to be serviced? So a quick point of clarification, that satellite was built 20 years ago and has been flying for 15 years. And 20 years ago, we never thought that we'd want a spacecraft to keep flying longer. A classic example in the aerospace industry is actually the B-52 bomber. That was designed for 20-ish years of service, and it has been flying for over 70 years. Aerospace things are often over-designed in a number of ways because we have so much uncertainty that it ultimately leads to something that's still useful and viable. And so that's really where we come in, is we're saying, here's something that's still of value to, it's still operating well, but it's out of fuel. We dock and we're providing the propulsion now for you. 
what we do want the industry to go to, and I think this is what you're starting to allude to, as companies like ours help extend that life, why not have either more services that do what we do or design a spacecraft a little differently so that it has the ability to do its own extension? Well, that comes at a cost. This is like having a car that has two engines in it because one engine might fail. You're going to always carry around a second gas engine, right? That's hurting your gas mileage. It's filling up space in your car because you have these two engines and one that you're not necessarily going to use. What Starfish helps you do is be the tow truck. It comes in when you need us, but otherwise you can continue to operate. And I imagine it's cheaper because instead of them having to build an engine like the one that's on the Otter vehicle, that cost gets spread out across multiple clients who are all using a single Otter. Yeah, exactly. There's an opportunity for an operator to use a full Otter if they'd like to. But And this is to maybe your point in Leo, where we can actually start to spread this out. There is a set of constellation operators. Think of these as the SpaceX with the large internet from space setup. There's OneWeb, Kuiper from Amazon, etc. A lot of folks are starting to think, of let's build these big constellations to provide service in low Earth orbit. And for reference, we use this terminology, low Earth orbit, but this is somewhere between 400 to 1,500 kilometers up. The actual definition goes all the way up to 2,000 kilometers. The space station's between four and 500. So they're all kind of flying around where the space station is, very, very close to Earth in the context of orbits. But the value for that is you can actually get really good signal quality. So this is almost like yelling at your friend, the further away you get, the louder you have to be. That's very true in space as well. The further the spacecraft is from Earth, the more energy you have to put into sending the signal down to Earth. And so being a little closer helps faster internet speed or better picture of the Earth because you're closer and you're not, you're not getting as far away. And so that's why they build these constellations. But also the spacecraft is whipping around the Earth. It's going around every 90 minutes, which means as you look up in the night sky or as you look up in the sky when it's flying over, it can go from one horizon to the other in just a few minutes. So if you want to have continued connectivity, you're going to need multiple satellites that all can just continually replace each other in your field of view. And so that's why these constellations start to become thousands of satellites. But now you can start to see the next challenge, which is if multiple satellites are all up there and they're all flying like in the same shell, if you will, right, the same bubble, and they're starting to cross paths, You have to start spacing them out so that they don't hit each other. And this starts to lead us to the next question is, if we continue to add satellites, at some point, the lanes of traffic just get full and you have to start worrying about collisions. Now, we call those conjunctions, but essentially two spacecraft get too close. And in those cases, we usually have a little maneuver that we do that slows one down or speeds one up. And it's almost like merging traffic. You miss each other. It's fine. But if you ever go through an intersection at the same time, it could be a bad day. Imagine if one of those spacecraft was uncontrolled and the other one was trying to dodge and you just can't quite get out of the way. That's a bad day. And that's what happens and we're kind of avoiding this collision risk. Starfish comes in just like a tow truck in this same case. We can remove that one satellite that is dead, that's not operating, pull it out of the way. So all the operational ones can continue to use the lanes of traffic without issue. Everything's timed perfectly so they keep missing each other, right? That's really where our our value starts to come in. And it comes into play, and we can actually take multiple spacecraft out as they die, because it makes sense. If you have 10,000 satellites, a few percent, like let's say only 1% of those fail, there's still 100 of those that still need to go and be pulled out of orbit that could not have gotten themselves out of the lane of traffic. 
that scale now enables something like a starfish otter to go and be viable. They actually can say, oh yeah, I'm going to buy a hundred tow truck services from starfish and that'll help clean up my orbit so I can keep operating. Previously, we had this tragedy of the commons where we weren't sure who was really going to be responsible for making sure orbits were clear. Now these constellation operators, it's really self-imposed. They're incentivized to keep their own orbits clear and we can start building that tow truck service. In the same way that when you're in a car on Earth, there's cell towers everywhere because you're the moving object. And as you move across the Earth, you need those cell towers so that you can constantly switch between them so you don't drop your call, you know, unless you're, (laughs) it's 2008 and you're on T-Mobile. No offense, I'm on (laughs) T-Mobile now, but times were rough back then. But this is like that in reverse. So in this instance, all the cell towers are moving while you're staying put. Yeah, exactly. It's almost like you're standing on the side of the road and each car is giving you the cell tower service. Exactly. I mentioned how I spoke with Ashley Vance recently. He's the author of the best-selling 2015 biography on Elon Musk. And his most recent book is, like I mentioned, When the Heavens Went on Sale. In our conversation, he had said, and this is to a point you made earlier, Trevor, from 1960 until 2020, humans managed to put about 2,500 satellites into low Earth orbit, or what we refer to in this conversation as LEO. And in only the next two years after that, basically from 2020 to 2022, we doubled that from 2,500 to 5,000. And estimates say, looping back to something you said, that in the next 10 years, we could put anywhere from 100,000 on the low end to 200,000 on the high end satellites into space. You said at a recent convention held this March by the Space Advisory Council that, quote, these are just two things we can start doing now, speaking specifically to the two missions in GEO and LEO that you've talked about. But really, it's a foundation for the future here. Autonomous interaction in orbit is really going to be a key for building this industry up. It's going to be a key for how we scale from just a few thousand satellites to 100,000 satellites, end quote. So walk us through that, Trevor. What is autonomous interaction in this instance? And how is it going to solve the potential problems that arise when there are hundreds of thousands of objects competing for the same low Earth orbit real estate? Let's start very narrow, and then we'll zoom back out to answer that that last part of your question. So narrowly, let's think about two spacecraft that need to dock with each other. And that is, these two objects are traveling very, very quickly. And it's almost like two cars again, going down the highway at incredible speeds. But if you look over at the other driver, maybe you're only traveling a few miles per hour relative to the other driver. And the goal is to just bring yourself closer and closer, and then ultimately have a soft touch, like high five through the windows. That's our goal in orbit as well. We need to go and get very, very close gently as we're hurtling down this orbital highway. To do that well, we have to actually predict all of the things that will push us around. This might be Earth's gravity tugging on us. This might be, again, the moon tugging on us. And actually in low Earth orbit, there's still a little bit of atmosphere left that actually creates drag. It's almost like we're slowing ourselves down and it might be different based off of how big our spacecraft is relative to theirs. And so we actually see some difference in in the velocities. So all those things we have to account for, and we need to build that into our software. To do that traditionally, it has been, you can imagine driving your car or a pilot, having to manually steer that in. You're always looking over how close am I, doing small adjustments as you go in. Autonomous is that a computer or a program is making those decisions. It also has a pair of camera eyes on board. And so we call that cetacean. Cetacean is our computer vision that looks through two cameras, takes pictures of the object that we would like to go get close to, 
then we interpret that into how far away is it? What rotation is it at? What velocity is it moving at relative to us? And then we hand that to our next piece of software and we call cephalopod, which is, okay, here's the set of paths that I need to follow. I need to thrust at this time. I need to point at it at this time. And each one of those time points allows us to get closer and closer and closer. And we need to do that. We'll let our computer program make those decisions. Why does that become important? It becomes important because the forces that we're dealing with are very small. The sensitivity that when we take an image where our brains have become really good at determining range, but so too can a computer program, that sensitivity means small adjustments have big outcomes. And so being able to take advantage of that in the computer program means we can actually make really precise adjustments. What's really specific to Starfish space and what has not been done before, and we hope to go test and, and hopefully prove this fall, is that we can do this entirely with a propulsion system called electric propulsion. It is really, really efficient in terms of almost like a gas mileage, if you will, but it has very low force. And so to do that really low force, it's almost like you're sliding into a parking spot and you can only turn the steering wheel a degree at a time. You have to plan really far away your whole arc that you want to go into pull into that parking spot. And just for us, we have to do the same. Software is really good at that. Humans are not so good at that. And so that's why we're trying to make it autonomous. And the number of satellites that are going to orbit, and even by a SpaceX or some of these others, means you can't have, as we've done in the past, hundreds of people flying one spacecraft, right? You see these classic movies where everybody's sitting in the control room, and each person's looking at just one part of the system. That's true for a lot of development programs. But if we want this to be operational, we can't have 100 people to one spacecraft. We need one person who can look at a hundred different spacecraft and make sure they're all functioning okay, which means each one of those spacecraft has to take a little bit more responsibility for its own well-being and all those little intermediate actions. That's where autonomy gets us as well, because we want to have this transportation that we're talking about, this docking that we're talking about, become a staple of our off-world economy. We want this to be a staple of how humans operate and work in space. And to do that means we have to trust certain parts of the mission to a computer, which means these precise actions like docking can become routine, just like assembling a car or you know, dialing in your phone. You can just quickly use a couple of autonomous functions that allow us to simplify our lives as humans and offload those tasks that satellites can be particularly good at. So that's really what underpins a lot of these concepts about autonomy, allowing us to do these complex actions and then scaling. We would love to have otters flying around hundreds of these, servicing a bunch of different spacecraft and we call this almost like push button autonomy in a way it could point at a spacecraft and say, that one needs our help. And we could send that up to order number 27 and order number 27 will say, I'm on it. And then a few days later sends us a text that says, I've docked. What would you like to do next? Right. That would be a great place to get to because then it allows us to actually coordinate this complex space environment. So it's a little bit of where autonomy is, what we kind of use it for and hopefully where it builds to. I especially love what you said, small adjustments have big outcomes, which I think is something that is so fundamental when it comes to talking about things traveling in space and why autonomy is so necessary. You know, I, <laughs> I'm a big Star Trek nerd, specifically Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm a real sucker for it. And I've been re-watching it recently. It's pretty much the only reason I have Paramount+. Plus. It's well worth it, in my opinion. And, you know, just watching the entire crew of Star Trek The Next Generation all 
you know, out there, each one at a computer, each one adjusting something different. One's on the propulsion system. Another one is doing something else. And it's totally unrealistic, but I imagine it's much more cinematic than if you just had a completely empty room with just one computer doing all of those things. But you're absolutely right. When you're traveling in that scenario, you know, millions of light years, it doesn't really make sense to have 10 human beings at the knobs. Really, it's just a single computer making micro adjustments over time. Yeah, that's a great example. And I'm totally a TNG fan as well. So good, good call out there as well. One of the things that's fascinating about your example is you think of the specialization that each crew member has, right? Data is there just trying to collect data for the crew, right? And you have Chekhov flying the ship. You've got Ahura listening to all the communications. Yeah, this is a perfect analogy for what a spacecraft is doing every time. And even as we think about what an operator should be thinking through, like what's Picard's main function? Why do we like watching him? It's because he's trying to take in complex information from a variety of different sources and weigh that. And really, that's the crux of what we're trying to build. There's a complex set of information. We're learning more about where the other satellite is. What is our thruster doing? We're trying to communicate from the ground as well. And then this complex decision has to be made about what to do next. Now, there are two parts of Picard that we can kind of break out. There's the part of Picard that has to say, you know, engage, fire the thruster now, right? That part does not need to be Picard necessarily, other than it's great to have a good command signal there. The part of Picard that needs to be the human aspect is what are our priorities? What matters to us? And that's where we should be spending kind of the human effort. And then the other parts of just flying the spacecraft can be more routine and broken down. And that's really what that crew embodies in each one of those episodes, right? They're, they're taking in a scenario and they have to decide how do our values inform what our decision is. And that's a hard thing to do. Fortunately, a spacecraft doesn't have to decide whether or not humans should be in space. All it has to decide is, well, you told me to dock, so that's my priority. That's where we can kind of split that out. But it's a great example to pull. Yeah, you don't really have to twist my arm to make a the next generation <laughs> reference. So it sounds like if I'm to sum up what you just said, Trevor, that the crew of the Enterprise is the otter vehicle and the human is Picard saying, make it so. Exactly, exactly. And really, everybody's function kind of all comes into interplay and making sure they're all coordinated well. Let's talk space debris. On NASA.gov, I found a pretty good definition of space debris. And specifically, when we're talking about space debris in this instance, I think we should be more clear. It's really orbital debris, since that's what we're talking about in this instance. And it relates to satellites and other objects that we launch into orbit around Earth. And their definition is, quote, Orbital debris is any human-made object in orbit about the Earth that no longer serves a useful function. Such debris includes non-functional spacecraft, abandoned launch vehicle stages, mission-related debris, and fragmentation debris. Here's the key part. That's actually kind of terrifying. There are approximately 23,000 pieces of debris larger than a softball currently orbiting the Earth. They travel at speeds at up to 17,500 miles per hour, fast enough for a relatively small piece of orbital debris to damage a satellite or a spacecraft. There are half a million pieces of debris the size of a marble or larger. (laughs) That sounds like a lot of debris. But one critique that I've seen online of space debris removal or the need for it, and this was actually a comment on Reddit responding to my recent conversation with Ashley Vance about Kessler syndrome. Their critique is, this is an astroturfed problem. It's not actually a problem. Their view is that Space is huge, Trevor, and that debris will naturally resolve itself, especially in low Earth orbit. 
by burning up in the atmosphere once it falls to Earth. So clearly you disagree with that because (laughs) you're the co-founder of Starfish Space. But my rather blunt question to you is, why are they wrong? Why is there a need for this service? Why are they incorrect that the problem will just resolve itself? I think they're only partially wrong. I think there are a number of very valid points in there, but let's contextualize why they're valid. So a couple of the high-level points. Space is big. Yes. Space is vast. A lot of these spacecraft, we see these images with spacecraft flying around, and it looks incredibly dense. But it's worth highlighting that those are measured in tens or thousands of kilometers apart. You could almost, in some cases, pass an Earth between a couple of satellites in specific orbits. And in other cases, you could pass a U.S. state between two satellites that are in orbit. So there is distance between them. Also thinking about it as like a 3D sense that you could have, almost as airplanes do, one's flying north-south at a particular altitude and east-west at another, you get separation, right? So even as they might pass close in one dimension, they're actually pretty spaced out in another dimension. So that is, I think, really the underpinning of the argument that space is vast, that there is not a lot of close calls. That's true for the objects that we track. And I'm glad that you kind of brought in some of the numbers there because it's also worth highlighting there's a spectrum of objects. There are the flecks of paint, the nuts and bolts, the loose glove that are still flying around and could pose kind of a collision risk. NASA has done a number of studies that shows the impact of these objects once they've struck one of our orbital structures. And it does look rather shocking. You can see these large, thick metal structures completely deform or in some cases have a hole through the middle where it actually made contact. So that is really the reality. The orbital energy involved means that any collision that does happen has a large implication and sometimes mission ending. What stands out in some of these arguments though as well is that things will just clean themselves up. Well, historically, that has been true at a density that we've described that five decades of human launching activities is being surpassed by two years of human launch activities. When we start to follow that trend, that's almost like the Wild West never had any wagon collisions. Agreed, right? But car collisions are a very regular occurrence now as we're starting to use the same lanes of traffic and the same density of operation here. That's kind of the trend line that we're on here. And so part of the thought process for us is not just, are the collisions happening? But they should be nuanced and looked through a lens of how close are we getting? How often is that happening? What are the outcomes if they do collide? And you can look at the side of the space station or side of some of the objects that come down, and they're pockmarked. Some of them look like golf balls. There was a really cool experiment that NASA did for those that are curious, kind of a material longevity research. I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the actual spacecraft, but it was basically this drum or a cylinder that they put up, and then they just made a patchwork quilt of all these different materials that we like to use in spacecraft and put it on the outside, left it up there for a few years, and then brought it back down and looked at how well did each material survive. And it was just scattered with small things. And that's not just human objects, that's small little pieces of rock and material that are flying around the, the cosmos here that impact this. So we're being hit all the time with things. It's just a matter of like how much energy is being transferred There are a lot of companies that are starting to think about, can we track better? Can we make better estimates? Because sometimes we'll say these two objects are going to collide with some probability. That's a word that is actually carrying a lot of weight here. There's uncertainty around whether or not these two objects will hit. You know, 100%, we're going to hit 90% still means we might not hit. That means only one time out of 10 will we miss, but it's still going to be, there's a high chance. 
a lot of these probabilities are actually very small. We look at fractions of a percent start to cause us concern because if we think about an expected value or if we multiply the number of times we're going to get hit with the devastation that will happen, we still get that just a few fractions of percent could be enough to be mission ending. It would be worth us maneuvering to dodge an object. And that's part of why the decisions get made to better track objects, or in some cases, try to avoid a collision. Because a small percentage change actually does have, as we've described earlier, a big impact on whether or not we're going to, to have a survivable mission there. And so that's really what we're starting to think through in, in terms of what orbital debris is all about. In regards to what the Otter vehicle can do with debris, you walked us through how it would take, you know, let's say a non-functioning satellite and remove it from a constellation and I assume push it towards the atmosphere or just do something with it that takes it out of harm's way or I guess disallows it from harming functional satellites. But do you see any future path where the Otter can do something about those softball-sized objects or marble-sized objects? I mean, I imagine it's not going to go around with a giant fishing net, but is there something that it can do for the tens of thousands of objects that are smaller than a satellite that could cause a great deal of damage to ones that are currently operating? Fantastic question. Yes, from a technology standpoint, but should we from a business perspective? That's a hard question to answer and to kind of weigh those two things. I could actually ask a question that's relevant because it does get to the tragedy of the commons. In an op-ed for spacenews.com titled, Clearing Space Debris is Good Business, which is an article that you actually referenced in one of your recent talks, there's a line that stood out to me, and it's about this. Quote, space debris is often considered a tragedy of the commons where the pain is spread across too many parties for anyone to pay to clean it up, end quote. And so tragedy of the commons for our listeners. It's a phenomenon in which common resources become depleted in the absence of regulation, or to quote the ever-knowledgeable Wikipedia, quote, if users of such resources act to maximize their self-interest and do not coordinate with others to maximize the overall common good, exhaustion and even permanent destruction of the resource may result, end quote. So the best relatable example I can think of for space debris, and it is not exactly a one-to-one, so forgive me, Trevor and listeners, would be if we lived in a society without public waste disposal services. So if garbage trucks didn't drive down our streets once a week, and if everyone was responsible for just driving their own garbage to a waste site whenever they had too much of it at home, and imagine in this apocalyptic scenario, if there was no penalty for not taking your trash to the waste site, if you could just leave it on the street forever, that seems to be the current state of things with the existing orbital debris that we're talking about, these softballs and marbles floating around. So when it comes to moving satellites out of existing constellations, the incentive to pay for that service is kind of baked into the premise. If I can protect my own constellation from a satellite that I already paid for, that's part of the constellation that my business is running. Yeah, I want to get Starfish Space right on that, protect my own investment. But when it comes to these objects that are floating around, we're not sure who caused them. They're already there. They don't belong to any one company. At least no one's claiming them. What's incentivizing any one individual company to invest in that space debris removal? It feels like for this to be a true profit center or to incentivize Starfish Space to do something about it, you would need to first lobby for the governments to mandate it, to continue my inartful metaphor here, the government of the US or International Federation 100 years from now, if we're going to go the Star Trek route, we're going to buy 10,000 Starfish Space Otter vehicles. And we are going to make them 
the waste removal robots of low Earth orbit. And we will pay for this. It is now a public good like waste removal here on planet Earth. And that's going to do it, right? Because I don't imagine any private company is going to just, out of the goodness of their own hearts, start you know, rounding up those softballs. I want to put a shameless plug for Starfish here and say, you know, the ability for us to grab and move spacecraft around allows us to do the mission that you described with the Constellation owners right now. But it also positions us in a place to go do some interesting missions going forward, like recycling or waste collection, if you will. But to be very specific here, right, there are some spacecraft that can go ahead and just naturally burn up, but they have to be low enough for that to be the case. And even in the Starfish Otter mission concept, we grab a satellite and we just lower it down enough that it'll decay itself and then go up and grab another one and just do that a few times. And so we're actually already taking advantage of what naturally does happen. We're just accelerating the process. And by accelerating the process, we're reducing the number of opportunities for a bad day. And that could actually have significant financial impact. Also notable with the tragedy of the commons, right, that it's going to be driven by some of the policy implications. And that's a challenging problem. As we all know, getting new policy in place, as we know, coordinating an international community around what could be perceived as an environmental challenge, as we think about our space environment, is an incredibly hard task to do. That's why Starfish is really vectored towards a financial incentive and an economic value add. That's why we've targeted groups like constellation operators and the big geostationary operators as our first customers because they have a financial incentive now. And what we're hoping to lead is that as these companies build trust in Starfish, as they start to use our services, the community at large can point to that as a solution and say, look, there are now otters in orbit that are doing this on a routine basis. Let's use them more. Let's use this service and start building this in. And this was to your previous point as well. We can start designing for the full life cycle of a satellite and start using Starfish in that life cycle more and more and actually treating this full life cycle rather than just through the end of when we turn off the ignition, if you will. And so that's really why our initial thrust has been, let's go provide an economic incentive for current operators to embrace satellite servicing, to embrace life extension, to embrace the debris removal, because that foundation allows policy regulators to point to a real capability. It allows a practice in orbit to show that, sure enough, this service provides value and that also we start thinking as a community, this is really a part of the life cycle we have to consider. And that's part of our, our rationale at Starfish. That's part of why we built the Otter. And part of the reason why even this summer when we go and launch our Otter Pup demonstration mission, that it's going to a low Earth orbit destination. It's because we get to actually go test these theories in a very relevant environment. We get to go see can starfish gawk with another spacecraft. I mean this generally whenever it comes to this just amazing technology, whether it's in the space industry, the tiny little computer in my pocket that can do more than what the initial spacecraft that went to the moon could do. I find myself constantly, and maybe you find yourself in, in this position as well, Trevor, like I find myself constantly having to fight this subconscious instinct in my brain to just normalize all of this. I remember the very first time I saw a Falcon 9 land because they do this in 2001, A Space Odyssey, which came out in the 1960s. And it was just fiction at the time. The idea of a rocket landing back on Earth it was unimaginable. And now we're at the point where it's happening so often, I kind of shrug at it. Like I used to pull up YouTube every single time there was a SpaceX launch so I could watch like a little child as these rockets landed back on Earth, my mouth agape. 
And now I'm just like, ah, I can't really find the time. And on one hand, I guess that is a sign of progress, right? Like something that is initially mind-blowing becomes almost mind-numbingly mundane. But there is a part of me that, I don't know why I feel this way, but there's a part of me that just gets a little sad. Like I've reached a point where I'm taking for granted something that at one point was so unimaginable that you couldn't convince someone that it would happen. And so whenever I watch, for instance, the video that details the Otterpup mission, it's this CGI video of what it's going to be doing. And it's a very realistically animated video. And I've been imagining it as I've been preparing for this conversation, Trevor, about, oh man, and one day there's going to be all these little autonomous otters flying from satellite to satellite, repairing them and pushing them into orbit. And it's such a cool image. And yet I know one day it will be so common that I won't even give it a second thought. Do you find yourself having to fight against the atrophy of excitement that can happen when you're in this space? I do not personally find that atrophy just yet. I would love to be in that position. I'd love to be in the place, like again, with the next generation, right? Where the defining scene is not when the shuttle pulls into the docking bay, right? It's all the other action. That's where we hope to get. Part of what Otter Pup is all about is can we build the technology? Can we build the process? Can we build the algorithms that are on the spacecraft? So that it does become routine, that it becomes a boring operation that you just need to do. And that what gets you excited is like, oh man, we're going to build this telescope that's massive. Or can you imagine if we took a spacecraft and took off the solar panel and added a new one that was better and it suddenly came back to life? Part of the reason what Starfish was founded on was let's go recycle the material. Here's a satellite that we don't intend to use anymore, but it was a launch that got it up there. That's high-grade aerospace material that's sitting there. What if we just put that in the space kiln, 3D printed out the other side, and suddenly we have a whole new mission that gets off the ground and it was already up there. We already paid the launch cost for it. Those are the types of things that get us excited and become true when interaction in orbit becomes more routine. Right now, oh, the, the chills are still real. Thinking about the complexity of Otter Pup and like each one of those steps is so hard. Starting off on the spacecraft and separating and then going kilometers away and trying to bring that back to even just a few hundred meters, which in spacecraft terms is incredibly close. A few hundred meters away from a spacecraft is not just usually done. And many people, their eyeballs go wide when you start getting the space community, we start telling them you're getting that close. And, and I had a NASA mentor rightly point out that the pucker factor is high. You're kind of on the edge of your seat when you start getting close. But we want that to be routine, right? And so for us, like our hearts are going to be pounding as we come in close. But that's why we have spent the time and effort trying to build algorithms that can do that part. That's why we have the team that not only at Starfish, but those that we're working with, like Castor Digital and other groups that have helped pull this mission together so that we can actually go and try this out. And at the end of the day, some of these things will go well. Some of these things we're going to have to learn why we're there, like the first Falcon 9 launch and try recovery. Like, what did they do? They tried to park it over the water first, tried to do that a couple of times. Then they got it to hover correctly. Okay, now let's slide a ship underneath and let's try to land on the ship this time. Okay, ship becomes routine. Now let's land on the ground. What is that for Otter Pup, right? What's that journey for us? And that is this first one. So many little things could go on. We're going to try to just go and dock with it and hold on to it for just a few minutes. And then we're going to separate and say, yes, the technology works. If we can get to that point, my goodness, we came from kilometers away down to hundreds of meters. That's a huge success. Hundreds of meters down to just tens of meters, right? Arms reach away. That's a huge success. Being able to just see the other spacecraft 
point in the right direction, controlling it through those precise moments, feeling like we're doing so safely, right? The part of our spacecraft software actually allows us, if we're ever slightly off of where we want to be and we start getting worried that we're going to miss or that we're going to hit in the wrong place, it can autonomously turn itself and thrust away and create some more separation and try again. Those are the types of things that keep us up at night that we think through and are analyzing in a lot of detail just to give ourselves a good shot, right? 50-50 chance this goes well, but that 50% chance that it goes well is worth all of this. That's why we need to go test. That's why we need to put it in orbit. But we're going to do so responsibly with all this safety algorithms that we put in and putting it in a specific orbit. As one of your posters rightly pointed out, that it could come down naturally if something goes wrong. Circling back to the importance of storytelling, I would challenge anyone not to get excited about the future of this technology listening to you talk about it. Let's compare the Otter Pup to the full-sized Otter vehicle. So what are the technological differences? What are the size differences? You know, again, for our audio-only audience here, what are the capability differences? If the full Otter vehicle comes in at 500 pounds, what's the weight of the Otter Pup? Walk us through the differences between these two vehicles. Otter Pup is such a unique vehicle in so many ways. And Otter itself, when it's realized, and I hope it's a when, but if it's realized, it's going to be unique in its own right. Starting with Otter Pup, this is a 40 kilogram spacecraft, which for space people, that will mean something. But for everybody else, that's the size of a microwave. It is a vehicle that has propulsion on board, its own thruster, its own communication system. It has our special capture system that sits out on the front. It has all of this computer set up so that we can control multiple parts of the spacecraft at the same time, do these onboard calculations. We fit that all inside the size of a microwave. That is a huge feat in and of itself. There are no other vehicles that have docked on that scale before. Everything else that's really been docking has been multiples of that, several hundred kilograms, or even in the case of a lot of the vehicles that go to the space station, otherwise like thousands of kilograms. So this is really kind of unique to be able to compress it down to this size. That comes from the software that we're doing. We're taking complexity out of the hardware, putting that complexity in the software where we can actually iterate quickly and learn on orbit. That 40 kilogram spacecraft, if it docks successfully, will grow into the full otter, hence otter pup and otter. Otter allows us, this is, as you rightly point out, this ESPA class vehicle. We like to think in kilograms because we're cool space people. (laughs) That's somewhere between 200 and 300 kilograms for us. And that vehicle you can think of as the size of a washing machine. And the difference is there. If, If Otter Pup is successful, we could take the electrostatic capture system that we call Nautilus off of Otter Pup. Well, we'd have to build a new one, but we would build the same kind of one stick it on the front of an otter, and it could go do the docking mission. We would take the software that was on board Otter Pup, and we would put that on the otter as well, and make a few small changes. We'll say, okay, we're slightly heavier than we were, and we're slightly bigger. But the software itself could just easily ingest those new things, almost like you have a username on your computer. This software has a username as well. Like, oh, this is otter instead of otter pup, and could go and do that mission. And then we'll add a couple of other things, a lot more fuel. The mission that we're flying with Otter Pup allows us a few months of testing and trials, but the full Otter is supposed to last for five or more years on orbit. So that's kind of where we get to grow into this new mission, and we could be in an incredible place where things go well on all fronts, and we're off to the races, or we're also in a place where we have to go do some more learning. We're going to have to try a couple things again and go fly another mission, kind of like Otter Pup. In the same talk you gave for the Space Advisory Council, there was a, a slide display detailing some facts about the upcoming Otter Pup demo. And there was one that grabbed my eye. It said, quote, less than 5% cost of all similar missions, end quote. 
And I didn't quite understand that. So I'm just going to selfishly ask you to elaborate on it. What does that mean exactly, especially as that relates to this being a demo, a technology Mm -hmm. validation, and not a service mission with the full-sized Otter vehicle? So what does that stat mean? Yeah, it's good to differentiate a little bit between like a service and a demonstration. Really, the only difference is who's paying for it. In our case, we self-funded the demonstration mission. And in the case of the servicing mission, it's actually being paid for by a customer. But under the hood, it's all the same technology. It's all the same challenges that we have to go and overcome. So how that breaks down into a price and the number of this like 5% that we use, if we think about the space shuttle, for instance, it went and serviced in Hubble. That was a billion dollar mission. If we think about some of the vehicles that go dock with the International Space Station, these are millions of dollars to go build those vehicles. If we think about even some of the other demonstrators that other companies have put forward, it takes, in some cases, hundreds of millions of dollars to go and build these companies that can build these demonstration missions. Starfish was very fortunate to get our seed capital round of funding that was close to about $8 million, And we were able to go fund this mission really kind of a validation that we hope of the core thesis, which is we can be cost effective about these docking missions. We can be cost effective in a way that we haven't seen other companies do before, or even other nation states like NASA has never done it this affordably. And if we can prove that out, it really does become the space Uber. It becomes the thing that we can scale to Leo, to Geo, to everywhere in between, out to the moon. If we can actually make that routine service, it has to be at a price point that can make sense for people. In an official video detailing this summer's Otter Pup launch and the docking, I believe, is going to be taking place in the fall, the video also explains Starfish's vision for the future. It's claimed that one potential future use, and you've touched on this a bit here in this conversation, of your technology is that, quote, assembly and manufacturing can occur all while in orbit, end quote. And now I understand that's not one of the two key missions for the immediate future of Starfish, but it really grabbed my attention. Not only does it seem so cool and futuristic, but it seems incredibly useful. So this is something that you're aiming for with this technology for the future. What would the advantage be for building something like a satellite or a piece of a satellite or anything else you could build and manufacture in space? What's the benefit of doing it in space versus like you do an Otter Pup or an Otter Now? building it here on Earth, putting it in a rocket, and launching it into space? What's the advantage of building it in space versus on the ground and sending it up? It's a fantastic question. And it really comes down to what is the flow of a satellite to an orbit? Often, we have to design a spacecraft to survive five minutes on a rocket. And that survivability is shaking it a bunch. It's being hit with thermal loads, which means it's just getting hot or cold. And as part of it, it also has to be like origami. It has to fit in a really small spot because as the rocket needs to be a specific shape and they want to pack a bunch of spacecraft in there, you need to be kind of in a small little box for yourself. And then when you get to orbit, that's when you get to spread out. You deploy your solar panels, which means just kind of extend them. And you get to start creating the shape that's really ideal for space, but not ideal for the launch itself. Because of that space constraint, because of the like vibration constraint, We have to use specific types of structures or specific ways to hold things together. In space, they're almost like Gumby. They're flexible, they're wagging around, and that's okay because there's not a lot pushing it around. And then we also can't build bigger. A great example of this is actually looking at the James Webb telescope that just recently launched. And what an incredible thing for that telescope to go be and deployed. 
but there were 400 or more single point failures that could have happened during an unfolding origami event in which that spacecraft would no longer be useful. And that was just because it had to fit inside a rocket. If we could instead fly the pieces whenever they needed to be flown and just assemble it up there, then they wouldn't have to survive in this origami configuration. We could just fly them as they're best suited to be flown, get it up there, and then piece it together. And this leads to the next big thing. We have to design spacecraft right now to work without fail when they go up there. That's a crazy thing to do in any kind of energy industry. How many times can you pull your car into a mechanic if something goes wrong or your cell phone's having a bad day? So you go into the store and say, hey, and the guy like plugs in his little cable and types some things in or your computer gets fixed and you, you go home with it that day and there's no problem. If somebody had to design a cell phone to never fail or a computer to never fail or a car to never fail, the amount of effort and energy to make that possible is more And cost. Yeah, it's a horrible cycle to get stuck in. And that's what we're trying to break out, right? If you could actually fly a spacecraft with 2025 technology, five years later, somebody has an amazing breakthrough and makes a better camera. Wouldn't you want that camera on your spacecraft? And if we have this ability to assemble in orbit, we could fly a new camera in. And let's say that James Webb needs an upgrade. We could pull out a piece, slot another piece in, and suddenly our camera is 10 times better than it was a few years ago. That means we don't have to be constrained by what the technology of 10 years ago was for the spacecraft industry. We don't have to say what well, has to go through all these tests and it can't ever fail. And we're going to spend all this money and billions of dollars so that it always works the first try. Launch it up there, right? Send a couple of components and swap out as we need to. And that servicing mentality, that manufacturing mentality, the assembly mentality, all has to rely on a spacecraft. What a great world to live in because it's cheaper. It's going to be more timely. And you can be more responsive to, even if it's the terrestrial market, maybe you launch a, an internet satellite that transmits on, on a particular frequency, like as you would on your radio, you dial into the different FM stations and it turns out a different FM station is so much better and you want to change it. Sometimes you can't do that unless you go and fly a new component. We could do something like that. That's really where the future, I think, of space is and hopefully where the future of Starfish helps usher in. You know, thinking about the future with Otter in it. There are so many things humans are great at and will continue to be really great at because of how specialized our brains are. I think your Picard example from earlier is, is really insightful. Our big, incisive, thoughtful minds are great at making decisions in really important scenarios. We're like the quarterback, the robot, the AI, the systems, they can be the rest of the football team, but you need someone to make the calls and I'd prefer if it's a human being. But there are many things, I think, that we look back on now. And we only used humans there because we had to. You know, like doing backbreaking work, tilling a field. We've got automated vehicles for that now. We didn't have humans do it for thousands of years because we preferred it or because humans are just the best at it. We did it because that was the only option we had. And so now, thinking about the future with Otter, when I look back at videos of astronauts in space doing repairs on the International Space Station in those bulky spacesuits, I just think of a farmer in the 1600s tilling a field. It's like, we don't have to do it. The only reason we did it is because we just didn't have the technology to replace ourselves yet. And so it's so cool to think of a future in which Otter is basically doing the work of humans and replacing us. Look, I think of ChatGPT and I think of MidJourney and I think of a lot of instances here on Earth in which the idea of an AI replacing us is terrifying. But if there's one region 
in which I don't care if robots and AI and automated systems replace human beings. It's the cold darkness of space. I really don't mind (laughs) if robots take over for us there. What does the future five, 10 years from now, you know, when starfish space is a rollicking success, what does the future of your company look like? What is it doing in space? Paint us the picture, not just of the two missions that Otter is capable of doing now, but that the whole system of starfish instruments and software could be capable of doing 5, 10, 15 years from now. Not the confidential stuff that you're working on that's going to come out in the next 18 or 24 months, but paint us a picture of what it could be capable of doing on this trajectory many years from now. Well, I appreciate two things. One, your confidence in Starfish being around 5 or 10 years from now. It's never a sure thing with startups, but I, I do appreciate it. And also, your optimistic view of how fast space companies work in general, right? With the, the, the 18, 24 months here. We like to move fast and, and definitely have otters on orbit in that period. But those are good points. As we look out 10, 15, 20 years even, really it comes down to a core principle of just this autonomous interaction. The video that we put out for Otter Pup sometimes does, and, and, and often does actually, a better job of visualizing that dream more than I could articulate in words. Watching the otter put in a hexagonal tile for the next great telescope always gives me chills because it now allows this future that we just quickly talked about where you could assemble things in space that you could actually build components or structures that you wouldn't otherwise be able to launch. If we look at having humans and space stations, folks are talking about launching commercial destinations. You could go vacation up there. I wish I could afford it, but At the same time, once people do, there's going to be a need to maintain these structures. And you're right about the astronauts there. There was actually a problem just even with the gloves. Wearing the gloves was a challenge for astronauts, much less doing the work that they were supposed to be doing. If we can alleviate that, have astronauts focus on tasks that are really human-centric, that's great. As we think about things we have not yet thought about, I think that's what really gets me excited. The Classic example, again, from Star Trek that brings me excitement is having an orbital shipyard, watching a structure wrap around a rocket or a space vehicle that's destined for another world, starfish otters or or starfish technology in pieces, assembling that spacecraft, assembling in orbit and preparing us for this next great adventure and being part of that journey that humans go as we explore the cosmos, that's what gets me excited. At 3 a.m. or 2 a.m. when that email needs to be sent or that code needs to be written, I can look to that moment and say, yes, this is what we're building towards. This is what gets me excited and out of bed in the morning. That's really where I hope Starfish is finding its home and that not only Starfish being in that place, but every company that could build on this. We at Starfish like to think of space as an ecosystem. And we see it as an ecosystem because we will play, hopefully, a keystone role in that future. But it's going to require operators to bring their own ideas and their own spacecraft into orbit, bring their own spacecraft and ideas and ambitions to go to other worlds. And that's where I hope Starfish is living, as we are living in a place that enables others to do ambitious things and enables the human race to go and explore the cosmos. If I could sum up the theme of this talk for me personally, and this is just my two cents, but I would say that it's about the power of storytelling. You must first imagine the city on the hill that you have yet to build. Then comes the hard part. You have to tell the story 
to your peers and neighbors and fellow hypothetical future citizens that the city can be built and is worth building. We make the future possible by telling each other a story of the future we want. So I want to thank you, Trevor, for getting me excited for the future, not just because of the innovative, specialized technology that you and your team are building, but because of the story you're telling about why a company like Starfish Space is so vital for the future of our rapidly growing space industry. I look forward to a future with Starfish in it. And so thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And thank you for making space in your schedule to talk with us. Oh, thank you very much as well. Happy to share more about space. And I'm glad that others are excited about the journey that we're on together. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts. 